pray that as we break the bread of life, the word of God, which lives and abides forever, as you said, heaven and earth will pass away, but you said your word never would. And we were told by the Apostle Paul to give attention to the study, the teaching and the preaching of the word until Jesus comes. So, Lord, open up our hearts, our minds to understand, but more than that, Father, our hearts to soak the truth in, to make the determination that these are the words of the living God meant to give us instruction and to change our lives. And, Lord, whatever we need to hear tonight, we ask that you'd speak to our hearts. We need a word of encouragement and comfort or a word of admonishment or rebuke. I pray that our hearts would not be closed but be open and that your spirit would be the one doing the teaching to us and the prompting for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the Gospel of Luke has gone a little slower than some of the Gospels. It's the longest, by the way, of all of the four Gospels. It's the longest book in the New Testament. And it's very comprehensive of the life of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you were to take the Gospel of Luke and the follow-up to that, which is the book of Acts, which we're studying Sunday morning, and put them together, it would comprise 28% of the New Testament. So it seems that Luke was the most prolific of all of the New Testament writers, even more so than Paul the Apostle. In fact, if you added up all the verses that they wrote... Luke wrote 6,138. And Paul wrote 6,033. And uh, just by virtue of the comprehensiveness of the life of Jesus Christ and then the early church, the history of the early church, it's a very complete picture of Jesus Christ. He wrote to Theophilus at first. That's who the letter is addressed to, the book of Acts is addressed to, and the Gospel of Luke in the first chapters. I wrote to you, O Theophilus, of a detailed account of the life of Jesus Christ. And then in Acts, the former treatise, speaking of the Gospel of Luke, which I wrote unto you, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up. So it's a very complete uh, picture of the life of Jesus Christ. It is also, uh, linguistically, the most refined Greek of any of the rest of the New Testament writings. Luke was a physician. He was a bright fellow. He had a pretty extensive vocabulary, and he was very expressive and very descriptive, but his Greek is very refined. You only find something comparable to it in the book of Hebrews. Very refined Greek. When... I was studying Greek language. The book we started out with was 1 John, simply because John wrote in very simple terms. He was Galilean. He's a country guy. So he writes very uh, easy to parse verbs and easy to figure out nouns. And so we first parsed the entire book of 1 John and did all of the word functions to each word. After we finished with that, we started dabbling into the writings of Paul the Apostle, and Paul is Mr. Participle. He takes a participle and dangles so many thoughts off of that. And his sentences seem so long, because they are. He comes with the central focus and just unravels it with the use of participles. Luke is even more refined and extensive in his writings. And he's expressive when he describes the scene. It's with depth and with breath, like you'd expect a physician who had compassion upon people to write. And so uh, one of the reasons we are going through it a little bit slower is that Luke describes certain scenes, unlike any of the other gospel writers, describe them. And he includes things that the other guys don't include. Many of the parables that Jesus spoke are recorded only by Luke, and some of the stories are not uh, given in any of the other Gospels in the New Testament. We're coming up to a transition point, and actually around verse 51 of chapter 9 is a transition point. Jesus up to this point has been performing many miracles. The transition is he goes from 
the emphasis of miracles to the emphasis of teaching, especially the disciples. So we go from works to words because an antagonism has been building up by the Jews against Jesus. Now it's always been there and we see it surface in chapter 4 and in chapter 6, but it really starts getting pronounced right about here. And so the first part of Luke is the advent of Jesus Christ. Second part of Luke is the activities of Jesus Christ. And now we come to the antagonism toward Jesus Christ at this transition point in chapter 9. Um, we ended with the feeding of the 5,000 last week. And let me just give you a parallel account. John, actually all four gospel writers give the account of the feeding of the 5,000. It's the only miracle that they all recorded together and extensively. So it was pretty important. And it was a threshold. Jesus fed the 5,000 and he had so many people that were amazed by that that as soon as Jesus performed the miracle that we read about last week, some of the people tried to take Jesus by force and make him a king. Knowing that, Jesus slipped out away from the crowd, sequestered himself away in a quiet place so that they couldn't do that because they had the wrong motivation. You see, Jesus was a political tool and a pawn. They wanted to manipulate him. Hey, let's get rid of the yoke of slavery that the Romans have held on us for so long. Let's make this miracle worker our king. They did not understand the purpose of Jesus Christ. They didn't understand the person of Jesus Christ. They tried to manipulate him. And Jesus wouldn't let them because he came to suffer and to die. He came as the Messiah, first of all, to take care of the sin problem. When he comes the second time, he will come as the reigning king. There are a lot of people that do not understand Jesus Christ. I think they try to manipulate him. I think they try to make him into something he is not for their own benefit. Even as somebody will say, well, I picture God as whatever, fill in the blank. A lot of say, say that about Jesus. I sort of picture Jesus as being, instead of letting him speak for himself, instead of letting the Bible reveal who he is. So many people today talk so much about unity. Let's tear down the walls that divide us. I agree. But then there are certain walls that should divide us. The Jesus of the Jehovah Witnesses is not the Jesus of the New Testament. The Jesus of the New Age movement is not the Jesus of the New Testament. Oh, but it doesn't matter. Let's get together and we'll hug each other and hold each other's hands and we'll sway back and forth. It's going to feel real good. There needs to be unity in the church. Well, how do you get real unity? I'll tell you how you get it. By truth. How do you get real unity? More hugs? Not necessarily. You might be hugging somebody you shouldn't hug. Somebody else like your wife, who that hug should be reserved for. That's who you ought to hug most. You can never have unity in Christ until you have unity about Christ. We must agree about who Jesus Christ is before you can have any unity in Christ. The crowd didn't understand him. He did the miracle. They just wanted to make him this political pawn, this king, and he wouldn't let them. He left them. Now, he takes his disciples. They'd been observing him. They'd been with him for almost three years. It's about the last six, eight months of Jesus' ministry before the Passover. Jesus Christ has done many miracles. He's given many messages. They've observed how much did they know about him? What was their understanding of who Jesus is? And so this is a test. A test that is comprised of only two questions. Seems pretty easy. First question, who do men say that I am? Who do the crowd say that I am? Second question, who do you say that I am? In verse 18, and it happened... As he was alone praying, 
that his disciples joined him, and he asked them, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah. Others say, One of the old prophets has risen again. He said unto them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. Jesus already has turned his face, if you will, toward Jerusalem. He's facing the cross. He's right now at the very northern part of the land of Israel, and he's going to go on his way down in the next six months toward Jerusalem for the purpose of crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. He doesn't have much time with these guys. Now, he knows the answers to these questions. He's not begging for information and taking notes as they speak. He's trying to draw out from them what other people are saying about who he is, and then finally, who they say he is. Now, the answer to that question, the second question, is the eternal hinge of a person's life. How you answer that question determines your destiny. The first question isn't all that important. Who who do crowds say that he is? The most important is who do you say that he is? You'll notice that all of the answers were in conflict with each other. Nobody agreed, really, in the crowds. Everybody said this or something else. They, They were contradictory. All of the answers were wrong. You know, if you, if you try to find out your eternal information by polling the crowds to see what is most popular, you will not end up in heaven. Now, Jesus has been revealing himself to them. Let's see how much they picked up on. Who do the crowds say that I am? And then, finally, who do you say that I am? It's not mentioned, but in verse 18, it takes place at a place called Caesarea Philippi. It's about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee was the headquarters where Jesus hung out with his disciples, performed most of his miracles. His headquarters, of course, was in Capernaum. And so he takes his disciples and he goes 25 miles north to Caesarea Philippi. That's 25 miles north by foot, not by local cab. They walked. And it is continually uphill. We've taken it before on our tour bus, and that tour bus grunts all the way up on that long ascent to Caesarea Philippi. I'll tell you what, taking walks like that, they didn't need health club memberships in those days. These guys were fit. Hey, let's take a walk. We're going 25 miles away to Caesarea Philippi. It was much cooler. It was a beautiful place. still is today. Beautiful place, raised up in altitude. It's at the foot of Mount Hermon, the Mount of Hermon or Hermon uh, is over 10,000 feet in elevation. And the way it's situated, there's snow on top of it year-round. Now, Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. It's pretty hot down there. But you rise to the place of Caesarea Philippi, it's very temperate, very moderate. It's a great place to get away with the disciples. Caesarea Philippi, the place where Jesus asked this question, is very significant. And I think to understand the question and the answer, it's significant to understand the place. First of all, this place was very important to the Jewish nation because Caesarea Philippi was the headwaters of the Jordan River. And the Jordan River was the life spring or the quote-unquote living waters of Israel. It's the place where refreshment came out of the ground and flow down into the Sea of Galilee, and then pass the Sea of Galilee through Israel into the Dead Sea. And so the Jews revered it, respected Caesarea Philippi. That's the source of our life. You can go there today, and you can look at this huge mountain, and uh, this flat face of pure rock, solid bedrock, huge rock. As you walk up to it, you can see the Jordan River coming up from the ground, from the cave that is there at the base of the hill. It was important to the Jews. Not only was it important to the Jews, it was important to the Greeks. The Greeks believed that their god, Pan, P-A-N, was born in a nearby cave, and so they called the name of the place Paneas, after the god Pan. If you go with us on our tour to Israel, we'll show you some of the niches in the rocks next to the cave where they believe the god Pan was born. 
It was a place of worship, pagan worship. Fourteen temples have been found. They've excavated the ruins of 14 temples at Caesarea Philippi that go all the way back from the time of the Baals and worshiping of nature, Baal worship. It was important to the Romans because one of the Romans built a huge temple in honor of Caesar Augustus, Caesar of the gods. And so it was a place of worship for the Romans, for the Greeks, for the people in the Old Testament, and it was a place of reverence for the Jews. It's as if Jesus deliberately took them to this backdrop of religious significance. And in that place said, who do men say that I am? Jesus, of course, the life spring of the nation, the hope of Israel. You know, if anybody else asked that question, it would come off as sounding arrogant. If you walked up to a group of your friends and sat down in a coffee and said, who do men say that I am? They'd say, who cares? <laughs> but when Jesus asked the question, it is important because it is the hinge of salvation. For Romans chapter 10 Verses 9 and 10 tell us that if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess it with your mouth, you will be saved. For with the heart a man believes unto salvation or righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. There were many answers that were given. Some say you're John the Baptist. Interesting, isn't it? That people would confuse Jesus with John the Baptist. Well, Herod did, didn't he? When he heard of Jesus, he said, I thought I killed John the Baptist. He's risen again from the dead. He's come back to haunt me. Now, I think that people thought Jesus was John the Baptist for a number of reasons. John the Baptist was a good man. John the Baptist was very zealous. John the Baptist hassled the religious leaders. Jesus was good. Jesus was also very zealous. In fact, as Jesus overturned the tables in the temple, the disciples remembered the scripture, zeal for thine house has eaten me up or consumed me. Also, Jesus hassled the religious elite. Check out Matthew 23 as he gives seven woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. He just sort of lets loose on them. No respecter of persons. People today are not that much different from people in ancient times. Ask people, who's Jesus? Oh, he's a good guy, very zealous person, good teacher, like John the Baptist. But they will not go as far as to say he is the Messiah, the son of the living God, God incarnate. He's a good guy, like John the Baptist. Others said he was Elijah. And you say, now wait a minute, why would somebody think Jesus is Elijah? He's been dead 900 years at this point. Well, there was that wild prediction that Malachi made. You remember the last chapter in the Bible? That before the great and notable day of the Lord, Elijah will come to turn the hearts of the children back to their fathers. Jews have always at Passover kept the door open a little bit, and left an empty chair just in case Elijah shows up to fulfill that prediction and he would come to your house for Passover. You never want to offend him. Just keep a little setting there and keep the door open. So they thought, hey, the prophet said Elijah's coming back. This could be him. I think people thought perhaps this was Elijah. Well, for a number of reasons. Elijah was the defender of the law. We remember him from Mount Carmel calling down fire from heaven on the prophets of Baal. But there were more miracles associated with the life of Elijah than any other prophet in the Old Testament. And because Jesus was such a miracle worker, a Jew would think, well, that's a lot like Elijah. Elijah raised people from the dead. Elijah closed the heavens up for three and a half years. And then let it rain after a long period of time. He was a miracle worker. He healed people, it seems. So he's Elijah. Now people today will say the same thing. Yeah, Jesus, good guy like John the Baptist, great miracle worker like Elijah. But I wouldn't go so far as to say he is 
God in human flesh or the Son of God or anything radical like that. Then the crowds also said that he was one of the prophets. Matthew's gospel words it a little differently. The crowd said, others say you are uh, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now for a long time, you may not be aware of this, but there was a Jewish prediction not made in the scriptures, just among the Jews in the oral law that Jeremiah will come back from the dead and restore the Ark of the Covenant to its proper place within the temple in Jerusalem. Some were looking for Jeremiah to come back. And I think people confuse Jesus with Jeremiah because Jeremiah was very compassionate. We remember he's called the weeping prophet. He wept over Jerusalem, as Jesus does later on. A man of great compassion. And today, people will say, yes, well, we would admit Jesus is a good teacher like John the Baptist, a miracle worker like Elijah, a very compassionate person like Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But I sure wouldn't go so far as to say he's the son of God. It's best to let Jesus answer the question, isn't it? And he does throughout all the Gospels as he reveals himself to the disciples, and he has. So the second question, okay, that's what the crowd say. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests, the scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Now, Matthew's gospel tells us something else. That Luke doesn't. Luke must have loved Peter enough to leave it out. At this point, Peter, after hearing what Jesus just predicted, steps in to kind of save Jesus from all this. You know, he probably thought, hey, I got one right. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. Matthew 16 records that. He probably went, ha, ha. John didn't get it right. Bart didn't get it right. James didn't get it right. I got it right. And so when Jesus predicts this, Peter says, hey, no way. Not so. You can't go to Jerusalem. You know, we're going to stop you. We're not going to let you go. And Jesus turns to him and says, get behind me, Satan. Oh, excuse me. Uh, Sorry. He was so excited about this revelation who Jesus was that now he's trying to circumvent the plan of God because God's plan was to send Jesus to die for sins. So much of Jesus' time was trying to re-educate the disciples on who the Messiah was. They were the victims of their Jewish upbringing who thought the Messiah, when he comes, will come and conquer their enemies and raise up Jerusalem as sort of the kingpin nation of all nations. And, of course, that will happen. It will happen when Jesus comes the second time. He's showing them now part of God's plan is suffering, is going to the cross, is being rejected by the chief priest and to be killed. But he said, and, of course, they're not listening, they're selective listeners, and be raised the third day. And then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now, Jesus has taken this whole idea of suffering in the cross and making it personal to them. Not only is he going to go to the cross, if they want to follow him, they have to take up their cross. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Man, you can't get any more opposite of the philosophy of this world than that statement. Deny yourself. When was the last time you heard a commercial on television that said, deny yourself? They'd say, indulge yourself, pamper yourself. You owe it to yourself. Up your self-esteem. Yourself. In fact, there's even a magazine out called Self. We are a culture of people who worship themselves. 
How opposite can you get? Jesus said, deny yourself. Now, don't get the idea that Jesus is saying you have to deny things from yourself. The idea is you abdicate yourself. You take yourself off of the throne. Let me kind of put this in a modern analogy. Give Jesus the pink slip of your heart. Give him the keys of your life and say, take over. It's yours. You drive. Go for it, Lord. I'm yours. Paul said, don't you know that you are not your own? You are bought with a price. You don't own yourself anymore. When you said, Jesus, take my life, you gave it to him. Deny yourself. Let him be in control of your life. Secondly, take up your cross. Have you ever heard people uh, talk about their cross to bear? I've got this cross to bear. You know, they'll say, I'm married to this person. Man, it's my cross to bear. I've got this physical condition. I guess it's just my cross to bear. Well, that's not what Jesus meant. The cross was not just a trial or an inconvenience. It was the end of your life. Any Jew at Jesus' time knew all about the cross. During the lifetime of Jesus Christ, it is estimated that 30,000 Jews had been killed by Roman crosses. 30,000 Jews killed by Roman crosses during Jesus' lifetime. In fact, when Jesus was about 11 years old, there was uh, a guy named Judas, not the same one, but Judas or Judaeus, who rebelled against the Romans, he and 2,000 of his followers were crucified on the roads leading to Galilee and left to die and hang and rot by the sides of the road so that anybody traveling up through Galilee would see thousands of Jewish corpses on the crosses. It was a statement. This is what happens to anyone who rebels against Rome. So when Jesus said, take up your cross daily, it didn't mean take up your little trial or handicap or problem person. The idea is, again, you deny yourself, you take up the cross daily. It's the end of your life. It's a change. It's a repentance. You're not in control anymore. You live for God, not for self. And follow after me. And I'm sure the disciples, you know, they're so excited about who Jesus is. You're the Christ of God. Well, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to kill me. <gasps> yeah, and if you're going to follow me, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross. <gasps> He makes it really personal now that a life of obedience is the life of a disciple. You belong to Jesus Christ. That is a Christian. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what advantage is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? Now, this is ultimate hyperbole. Can you imagine a person owning the entire world? It's all mine. I've worked hard and I own the entire world and everything in it. He's like a walking dead man. How long can you enjoy all that people look for in materialism? How long can you have it? 50 years, maybe, that you can really enjoy it? And it's over. And you have all of eternity left. So what good is it in the light of eternity to own everything and have in the end nothing? Your soul is eternal. There's two things that will live forever, the word of God and the soul of a man. So what good is it if you have the whole world, but you lose your own soul or is himself destroyed or lost, as it's put here? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. I am sometimes amazed at how Bible scholars, Bible commentators can spend so much of their time debating an issue, writing books about a verse like this, what this really meant and, you know, what happened to these disciples? Are they still alive today? <laughs> what does he mean? Well, read the rest of the Bible. Peter tells us exactly in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we, we made known unto you the power 
and the coming of the Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For a voice came out of heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we were with him on the holy mountain and we saw it. The power and the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, if you haven't read the Gospels yet, and this is like your first time to a New Testament Gospel Bible study, you're thinking, I still don't quite get it. You will in a, in a minute, because what Jesus predicted will be fulfilled in the next couple paragraphs. Some of you standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. Then, behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory in the two men who stood with him. Sort of like a divine time machine, a time capsule. They were seeing in glorious form. Matthew says their clothes were so bright and the face of Jesus was like the sun and their clothes were as bright as, uh, brighter than any bleach on earth could bleach clothes. You know, the ultimate cleaner. And they were in a glorious, blinding kind of an appearance. Like John. One of the apostles who was standing there, who later on was on the island of Patmos and was sort of transported to the future unto the day of the Lord. And he saw Jesus Christ coming in his glory. His face was radiant. A sharp sword came out of his mouth. His eyes were like fire. His feet like burnished bronze. The disciples, Peter, James, and John, were seeing this vision of the glory of the future. We don't know where this mountain is. We probably think it's Mount Hermon because they were already up in that area. Some people think Mount Tabor or other mountain. doesn't matter. It was just a high mountain. And the only high mountain in that area, the highest mountain, is Mount Hermon. Um, verse 30, notice. Behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah. Now, why of all of the Old Testament saints, Moses and Elijah? I mean, why not Abraham? He's the father of the Jewish nation. Why not David? He's the one uh, whose descendant will sit upon the throne of David forever and ever, Jesus, so why not David? Well, Moses is equated with the law, right? The Old Covenant. It's called the Law of Moses. He wrote the first five books of the Bible, and every Jew adheres to those words of Moses as being the Bible. Moses was quite a leader. In fact, probably one of the greatest leaders in history, who led over two million rebellious people for 40 years through the desert. No thanks. To the Jew, there was none greater, as far as the law, the covenant was concerned, than Moses. He's the lawgiver. There was no greater prophet than the defender of the law, Elijah. In fact, when a Jew would sum up the writings of the Old Testament, he would often speak about the law and the prophets. Jesus on the road to Emmaus with those disciples. And they didn't know who Jesus was, and they didn't understand the predictions of the Old Testament. And he said, how come you guys are so bummed out? Your faces are hung so low. Oh, Jesus of Nazareth, a man whom we thought, you know, was the Messiah. He died, and we hoped in him. And he said, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have written. Ought not the Christ to have suffered and entered into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, Jesus expounded to them all things concerning himself. The law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah. The law and the prophets bearing testimony and witness to Jesus Christ and his coming. I think there's another reason. Now, this is my strong opinion, and I'm not alone in it. I think that God has some future plans for Moses and Elijah. I think that they will appear on earth again before Jesus comes the second time during the tribulation period. I think they're going to be hanging around. 
I think personally that the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11 sent from God are none other than Moses and Elijah. Because they are the witnesses to Israel. You can't get any greater witnesses to Israel than Moses or Elijah. And there's a couple of reasons I say that. Number one, they appear here. And they're talking about, other gospels say, the kingdom. Here, the departure. In the book of Revelation, the two witnesses come on the scene. They preach the gospel. It says, if anyone tries to harm them, listen to how wild this is. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes, proceeds out of their mouth. And they destroy anyone who seeks to harm them. They must all be killed that way, the Bible says. And they have power to shut heaven during the days of their prophecy, which in Revelation 11 is 1,260 days, three and a half years. How long did Elijah shut up the heavens? Three and a half years. These prophets have the power to shut up heaven during the years of their prophecy, three and a half years. They also have the power to turn the waters into blood, sounds a lot like Moses to me, and to enact plagues from the Lord upon the earth whenever they feel like it. Sounds like Moses. Moses and Elijah. Now there's other reasons I say Moses and Elijah. They're both interesting characters. Elijah, first of all, never died. He was taken in a whirlwind up into heaven. And Elisha received the mantle of his ministry and took over, but Elijah never died. And it's appointed unto man, every man wants to die. And I think he's going to show up, even as Malachi predicted, before the coming of the Messiah as reigning king, and he will be one of the witnesses in the book of Revelation. Moses also is interesting. You say, wait a minute, Moses died. You're right, he did die. However, Jude 9 gives us some really interesting insight into the body of Moses. It says, Satan disputed with the archangel about the body of Moses. That's a wild verse. Why would anybody care about a body? Listen, when I die, whatever. Just, you know, throw it in the ground. It's over. I'll have a new heavenly habitation. But Satan disputed with Michael, the archangel, over the body of Moses. Why? All I can figure is God has some future plans for the body of Moses. Here Moses and Elijah speak to Jesus. Revelation 11, it's very descriptive of Moses and Elijah. And I think they will be the two witnesses. Here, sort of a preview of coming attractions for Peter, James, and John. And they're not just shooting the breeze. They're talking about the departure. The Greek word is exodon, where we get the word exodus. Isn't that interesting? Moses was the one who delivered the children of Israel from the bondage of Egypt, took them through the exodus into the promised land. Jesus delivers from sin a greater exodus. That's what the word here is. And it speaks of really death and resurrection and ascension. Okay, verse 32. Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And it happened as they were parting from them. So already Moses and Elijah, you know, saying adios. And Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Duh. <laughs> Keen eye for the obvious, Pete. Good. Jesus, this is good. Good. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now listen to this. Not knowing what he said. Whenever you don't know what to say, it's better to not say anything. As Solomon wrote in the Proverbs, a fool is known by the multitude of his words. Even, even a person you know, says, who says nothing is considered as wise. Three tabernacles. What's going on? Well, if the New Testament chronologers are correct, the month that this takes place is the month Tishri, October. What festival happens during that month? Feast of Tabernacles. 
where all the Jews are commanded for seven days to build a booth and live outside in the booth commemorating the fact that while their forefathers trekked through the wilderness of Sinai into the promised land, God preserved and protected them and provided for them. Every year they were commanded for seven days to live in a tabernacle, a booth. And while they were making booths in Jerusalem, Peter sees this and says, let's make three tabernacles. And they'll be all yours. You'll have your own Jesus, of course. You're the center here. And we'll build one, a nice little one for Elijah, a nice little one for Moses. What was wrong with that statement? Well, first of all, he's equating Jesus, Moses, and Elijah all on the same level. That's why the father breaks in and says, this is my beloved son. Hear him. He now usurps or overshadows the authority, I should say, of Moses, the law, and the prophets, since they all spoke of him and he's the fulfillment. This is my beloved son. Hear him. But you know, I can relate to Peter, can't you? Haven't you ever had such a wonderful experience in the Lord that you just never want to leave? Oh, this is great right here. Let's just hang out right here, Lord. I don't want to leave this experience. Oh, this is wonderful. I don't want life to change. But it has to. While he was saying this, a cloud came over and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud. This is what Peter refers to in 2 Peter chapter 1, saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. Mark that. Some people come along and they say, You know, I really have nothing against God. It's Jesus Christ that I have a problem with. I believe in God. I, I just don't believe in Jesus. Well, God himself said, this is my son. You better listen to him. John, who happened to be an eyewitness, writes later on under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that if you don't have the son, you do not have the father. The only way a person can know God, the God, the only true God, is through his only son. And that's what God the father said. This is my beloved son. Hear him. And when the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things that they had seen. Of course, probably have a hard time getting people to believe what they had seen. Now, there's a shift in the scene here. You know, they're up on the mountain, this wonderful manifestation of glory, and that's all going to change. They're going to go back down into the valley, geographically and spiritually, and be confronted with evil, sinful man, demon-possessed person. It's always hard. It's always hard to come back to real life after a retreat. You're up in the mountains, you spend three, four days or a week, and oh, this is great, and you get all fired up, and you've got to go back to real life. But Jesus said, Father, I pray that you don't take them out of the world, but that while they're in the world, you keep them from the evil one. That's God's plan. The valley of the shadow of death. We don't like valleys. We like mountain peaks. Lord, I just pray that you'd airlift me from mountain peak to mountain peak. Glorious victory to glorious victory, miracle to miracle. That ain't real life. It's not too hard to trust God on the mountain, but wait till you get in the valley. How's your faith? And so they go back down, back down the big mountain. It happened on the next day when they had come down from the mountain that a great multitude met him. Suddenly a man from the multitude cried out saying, Teacher, I implore you, saying, I already read that, saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth. And bruising him, it departs from him with great difficulty. So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Now, if you were a disciple, what would you do about now? You'd probably kind of shuffle yourself to the edge of the crowd a little bit. You know, you've just seen some of the greatest experiences, and Peter made the greatest confession. You're the Christ. And now the challenge of their faith. Um, I asked your disciples to do it. They couldn't. Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And while he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. And Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back 
to his father. Now, I know that sounds harsh to listen to it, but I think what you're doing, what you're seeing here is a rare glimpse into the inner thoughts and the heart of Jesus Christ while he was on the earth. Do you realize what a culture shock it must have been for Jesus? For eternities past, all of the angels did his bidding for him. He knew the glories of heaven, the prerogatives of deity. Now he's on this earth. And there's unbelief at every front. His own disciples, as he's facing the cross not many months away, no faith. And probably after the experience of being on the mountaintop and fellowship with Moses and Elijah, rekindling what it was like, you know, he's so eager to return to his father. And you get that glimpse into his divine heart. Again, they were all amazed at the majesty of God, but while everyone marveled at all of the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Now, did they sink down into their ears? How often Jesus tried to get them to listen. Now, here he goes, Okay, listen up. Time out. Open your ears. Open your mind. I'm going to the cross. But they didn't pick up on it. Their preconception of the Messiah had so blinded them that they were selectively listening. And we do that a lot, don't we? We selectively listen. They did not understand this saying. It was hidden from them so that they did not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about the saying. Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be the greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him. And said to him, Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you will all will be great. Now I think that due to the mountaintop experience of seeing Jesus transfigured with Moses and Elijah in this preview of the coming kingdom, their heart, their hopes were rekindled. Wow, that's going to be so awesome, man, the kingdom. Did you see what happened? That was so great. And they're still in a high because of what happened on the mountain. And so they get into an argument of who's going to be the greatest. And this wasn't the first time, and it won't be the last time. A little bit later on, down toward Jerusalem, James and John will get their mom to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I have a little favor to ask. I know there's been an argument among all these guys, but really, I just like my two boys to sit at your right hand and your left hand for the rest of eternity. It didn't stop there. In the upper room in Jerusalem at Passover, they're still bickering about who's going to be the greatest. They wouldn't let up. All they could think about is personal greatness. They surely had no concept of ministry. Jesus took a child, the Greek word pideon, means a little tiny child. And I think that's significant. A pideon, a little child, or an infant is someone, someone who's just totally dependent for provision. Can't be on its own yet. Just looks to mom and dad innocently, trustingly, for life itself. Innocent. Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receive him who sent me. For he who is least among you will be great. He's not saying be, a, be uh, engaged in childlike behavior. Or, but the idea here is childlike behavior. And the fact that you trust your father and you'd humble yourself before people. The disciples had no concept of ministry. They wanted to be great. Jesus wanted them to learn to serve, to be humble. I've told you the story. It's one of my favorite of the days of the stagecoach when there were three prices for tickets. They all sat on the same stagecoach, and it was all exactly the same seating within the stagecoach. But you could buy a first, second, or third class ticket, and they all cost different prices. And of course, one person looked at it and said, hey, I'm not an idiot. I'm going to buy a third class ticket. They all sit in the same seat. So he bought the ticket, and everything was fine until they got to a hill. And the driver said, those in first class, stay seated. Those in second class, get out and walk. Those in third class, get out and push. And the man realized, now I get it. It's when you get to a hill and they need your help. 
We need more third-class passengers in God's kingdom who are willing to push, willing to get out, to serve others, not to just look for greatness or prestige. Then John answered, said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is for us. I guess I'm still amazed that even the disciples were so driven by sectarianism, denominationalism, if you will. Instead of being concerned about people being delivered from demon spirits, well, they don't follow us. They're not in our group. They were baptized by our elders in our church. They don't belong to our denomination. So infantile. So ridiculous, the things that we let divide us. Now, here's somebody in the name of Jesus casting out demons. It's working. Don't do that. You don't follow us. You're not in our church. Jesus said, don't forbid them. If he's not for us, he's not against us, he's for us. That doesn't mean everybody in the world who says, I got nothing against Jesus Christ as a believer. Please don't mistake that. We're not talking about the personal commitment here, but the work that a person does who is a Christian in the name of Jesus Christ. That's the context. Do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is for us. There's that great story in the Old Testament where young Joshua had to learn this lesson. He was a zealous kind of a guy, and he comes to Moses, and he says, Moses, I was over here, and I noticed something I wanted to bring to your attention really bothers me. Eldad and Medad are prophesying within the camp. Now, you didn't give him permission. I didn't give him permission, and I'm going to go stop him. What was Moses' response? He said, are you zealous for my sake? Would to God that all of the children of Israel would prophesy. Leave him alone, Josh. I love all God's people to have that same kind of capacity spiritually to prophesy. Let them be. Don't try to stop them because they don't have your little permission or see eye to eye on this or that. Don't forbid them. Listen, I thank God for the variety in the kingdom of God. God doesn't want clones. One of the things that really bothered me before I knew really anything about Jesus Christ is the way certain representatives of God's kingdom represented God to me. I really thought God was a big bore before I was a Christian. I thought the only thing God was interested in doing is cutting my hair, getting a fat tie on me, some goofy wingtips, and carrying a huge Bible. And I thought... I don't want to do that. Because, well, if you're a Christian, you've got to act like and cut your hair and dress like this and listen to this and do that. I thought, oh, goodness gracious. Whatever I do, I don't want to be one of them. And then I met some just normal people. I thought, can you believe it? Normal people who are Christians. Wow. It's revelatory. It's awesome. And they were kids like me, and they had a Bible in their hands, and they had such joy in in their eyes and uh, a band came to my high school a young rock and roll band and they played music that I could listen to and enjoy you know it wasn't um, Perry Como or old stuff that was written 1400 centuries ago it was modern stuff they were singing about Jesus and I thought normal I can hang with this now, there were some, as soon as I became a Christian, that if you're really a Christian, you'll look like one. And I always ask the same question. Tell me, what exactly do Christians look like? I mean, is there like a profile? Like, certain length of hair, it's in the Bible. First Fleshalonians, chapter 2. Above the ears, little buzz cut. Little tie has to be just right with a little fish in it. Listen, God's a God of variety. The external is so unimportant, the internal is very important. That's what I love about God. He's so 
filled with variety. So many different parts and members of the body of Christ. You come like you are. He changes you where it counts, the heart. Well, you know, there are young people who do dress wrong, and you ought to speak to that skip. You know, some girls come and dress immodestly. Listen, I think that when they mature and God gets a hold of their life, they'll figure it out. I really do. I have watched God take people who have, because of their dress or because of what they're doing, they get embarrassed over it. They go, well, this isn't edifying to the body of Christ. And, and God wakes them up to that fact. And, and I'd rather let God do it. It's much more effective. It's permanent. Now it came to pass, oh, it gets worse. When the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's going to be received up. In other words, he's going to the cross, his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. He's determined to go there. This is six months before Passover. And as he went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them as Elijah did? To me, it's funny. Imagine asking Jesus, would you like us to do that? Is this your will for our lives? To kill people? To be terrorists for you? I mean, come on. They're asking his, would you really like this? It just strikes me as odd. I sort of picture James and John with black leather bands and black leather robes. <laughs> if you were going from Galilee to Jerusalem, the most logical trek, the quickest route is a direct route from north to south going through the spine mountains of Samaria. It's the best way to go. It's a beautiful route, too. It's a lot cooler than the Jordan Valley or going around through Perea or even the coast. It's a lot easier. Straight route. Jews wouldn't do that. Jews and Samaritans had an animosity that stretched back hundreds of years, some 800 years. In John chapter 4, remember the woman at the well of Samaria when Jesus was there and said, Hey, I'd like a drink of water. She said, How come you, being a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritan. Back in 721 B.C., the Assyrians under Shalmaneser came and overtook the northern part of the kingdom of Israel. Denuded the land of its plant life. Took a lot of its people captive to Assyria. Left a remnant of people an earthly class, a working class, and brought some of their own people and other people they had conquered in other places and brought them to repopulate the land. And what happened is the native Israeli population intermarried with some of these people and developed sort of a half-breed race that became known as the Samaritans. When the Jews came back under Zerubbabel, and Ezra and Nehemiah, they never, ever got together. In fact, when Nehemiah is building the temple, a couple of, them, couple of them come and say, Hey, we'll help out. Nehemiah says, No, you won't. You will have no dealings with us. Because they were already starting to pollute the worship of God. And the final blow is when they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim in Samaria to rival the temple in Jerusalem. That's what Jesus referred to in John 4. When... The woman said, look, where's the right place to worship? You Jews say Jerusalem is the place you ought to worship. We say on this mountain, speaking of Mount Gerizim, the temple that was built by the Samaritans. Jesus said, it doesn't matter. The hour is coming and now is when the Father seeks for people who will worship him in spirit and truth. That's what God's looking for. But that's the rival temple. And probably as they're walking by this rival temple, this nationalistic pride swells up in the heart of James and John thinking back to the time when Elijah was so bold as to destroy the Canaanite false deities of Baal and Ashtoreth. He says, you want us? Because, you know, they were on the mountain with Moses and Elijah, and they said, oh yeah, Elijah, wow, what a powerful guy. Well, maybe he wants us to be like that. Jesus, is it your will that we kill them? Like Elijah. Jesus replied, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. 
Now, when Jesus comes back the second time, he will destroy with the sword of his mouth and the brightness of his coming. Second Thessalonians tells us, right? He'll destroy the Antichrist. Until he comes to judge the world, he has come to save the world. God is dealing with you today, not in judgment. He's dealing with you in mercy. He wants to save your life. He doesn't want to destroy your life. Before I came to Jesus, I thought, man, you know, I don't want to be a Christian like those guys. Look at him. And he's trying to ruin my life. No, he's trying to save your life. If you want real living, come to Christ. If you want daily joy and purpose, be a Christian. He's come to save your life. He hasn't come to ruin your life. The devil's come to ruin your life. And as long as you stay away from Jesus Christ, your life is ruined. Because one day, Jesus will be your judge. And he will judge you on the basis of one thing only. Your rejection of Jesus Christ. He's not going to say, well, when you were three years old, you stole that apple. And when you were seven years old, you said this to your mom. He's not going to give you a bill. Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit has come, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment of sin because they do not believe in me. Jesus has come to save your life. He created you. If he created you, he knows what makes you tick. He knows what makes you tick the best. He knows how to fulfill your life. When you come in line for the very reason for which you were created, and you come to know the one who made you, and you fulfill the very reason for your creation, it only makes sense, does it not, that life will be full. And praise the Lord, he's given us an owner's manual to make the product work at peak performance. I hate, for the most part, when I buy a gadget to read the owner's manual. I buy some, I just want to plug it in and let it work. I just don't like reading. You know, you buy a product and the owner's manual is this thick. It's, you know, it's like carry it in with a wheelbarrow. They're so huge sometimes. I hate reading them. I just want to plug it in and that's how I do it. If I buy a computer, if I buy software, if I buy a gadget, I just do it. But I often come to a glitch. I got a computer one uh, recently and everything was great. Hey, I figured it out on my own until Saturday night at 10 o'clock. And I was trying to get my message printed out, and it bombed. And I went, I should have read the owner's manual. So many people take no thought of God until their life crashes. The hard drive goes. They can't reboot it. They're in a real jam. Fortunately, God is on the other end of the line giving technical support 24 hours a day. 1-800-HEAVEN. <laughs> He's there. He never gets weary. He's come to save your life. Some of you have not allowed him to. He said, no, I don't want to become a Christian. Oh, I come to church. Oh, I listen. Oh, I look from afar. But I'm too cool. I'm not going to let anybody run my life. You're a fool then. Because you're letting Satan lie to you and run your life already. And the Bible says, Jesus said, Satan has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy you. And you're listening to a lie. The owner's manual says you will operate at peak performance if you fulfill the very purpose for which you were created, to know Jesus Christ, to know him. And you can't do that until your sins are forgiven. Well, how can I get my sins forgiven? You have to, first of all, admit that you need your sins forgiven. Admit that you're a sinner. Then you have to be willing, not, after, not only that, but to turn from your sins. It's called repentance. To change your direction. To give your life to Jesus Christ. You surrender your life to him. You follow him. You trust in him. He will save you from your sin. He will save you for himself. Oh Lord, how grateful we are 
for the heart of Jesus Christ, not to destroy, but to save. I pray that those words would sink into our ears and our hearts. I pray, Father, that we would not seek to destroy people around us. I pray, Lord, that we'd have a heart of love and compassion for those we see in the bondage of sin and being lied to by false doctrine. To reach out to them. To bank upon your mercies, which are new every morning. And Lord, knowing the kind of God that you are, we believe that you have even tonight led some here to our little service who have come with hungry hearts, who have come, Lord, knowing what they need. And right now we believe that your Holy Spirit is already speaking to their hearts. You, through your owner's manual, have spoken. And now I pray, Lord, that we, your products, would surrender to you, the manufacturer, the Lord, the one who made us, I pray, Lord, if there are people who are in this room or listening live by radio right now who have not made a commitment to Jesus Christ to be saved of their sin, they've not surrendered their life to you, that tonight they would do that. This is a very quiet and holy moment, and I would ask if you're in this room tonight and you haven't done that, but you're ready to do that tonight, to give your life to Jesus. We're not playing games. We're not talking religion here. We're not asking you to sign up on a roster or anything. But if you want to get serious with God and know that your sins are forgiven, know that you're going to go to heaven and know that you have peace with God. If you want that more than anything else, then I want you to acknowledge that you want that. And I want you to raise your hand right now. I want you to raise your hand right now. I want you to raise your hand right now. I want you to raise your hand right now. I want you to raise your hand right now. I want you to raise your hand right now. I want you to raise your hand right now. I want you to